God be with you. We're still doing okay? We're still here? Awesome. So, my friends, this morning, uh, three things about the story we just heard. Uh, Three thoughts on what this ancient story can actually tell us as people living here today. And for each thing, a question. A question for you each to take home and sit with and rumble with this week. Are you with me? Yes, some of you? Are you with me? Yes, thank you. All right, so the first thing. The story we heard is from the Old Testament, from the Hebrew Scriptures, from the Book of Kings. And the story is ultimately about a guy named Naaman. And the problem with Naaman is what? Yeah, he's got leprosy, yes. Um, and now that's not leprosy as we currently understand it today. Um, that's just a bad translation error that some monk made hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and it just became so commonplace, a translation, that it just became too much to fix it. So when you hear leprosy used in the Bible, it's not talking about the leprosy that we would know today. It's really this catch-all term for any ancient skin disease or irritation. But that's not to belittle it. To have leprosy was a huge deal, and we're not just talking medically. It was also a big deal because there were all kinds of social and religious implications. Having leprosy made you religiously unclean, which then made you socially untouchable. It literally would have separated you from your community, from your work, from your church, from God. It was basically a social and spiritual death sentence. Until you were healed, or maybe even cured, you would be cut off from everything and everyone. And now in this particular case, with Naaman, having leprosy is an extra big deal because Naaman himself is an extra big deal. He's this rich, powerful, important person in the king's army. And for it to get out that he would have leprosy, it'd mean that he'd lose pretty much everything he had and everything that he knew. It would be rock bottom for him. His life would shrink down to pretty much absolutely nothing. His power, his influence, his status, his role, it would all be gone. And so Naaman, as we enter into the story, he's seen it all slip away. His life is about to collapse. And then, and then who helps big, important, powerful Naaman? The slave. The slave helps him. And not just any slave a female Hebrew slave, the person as far beneath Naaman as you could possibly get, this person who is so thoroughly and so completely the other. She tells Naaman, oh, you should go see Elisha, this Hebrew prophet. He's got a reputation for healing people. And so Naaman, he goes, he gets there. He rolls out the red carpet. He marches up with all his chariots. All his power and might and fame are on display. And what happens? Elisha snubs him. Elisha doesn't even make an appearance. He stays inside. He sends out his servants. And his servants are like, oh yeah, sure, just go bathe in the river Jordan seven times and you'll be fine. And the servant turns around and goes back inside. And what happens next? He's mad as a hornet. 
He rejects it. Not only because the cure isn't coming from Elisha himself, but also because it's too simple. It's not grand enough. Bathe in the small, dirty Jordan River and then do it some magical number of times? Um, No, thank you very much. Naaman wants a show. Or at least he wants to go to a big, powerful, important, mighty river. So he leaves. He won't have any of it. He'll stick with the leprosy, thank you very much. But again, who steps in? A slave. Another slave. This time his slave. And so Naaman is convinced to go back to the Jordan. He dunks himself seven times, and lo and behold, he gets his life back. He is skinned like a baby, which is a terrifying image. (laughs) But it's this way of saying, this really poetic way of saying, he gets his life back. His life starts over. He's restored. He's saved from the shame and stigma, and he's free to go back home and experience the very fullness of life. And that's basically where our story ends. Now, one of the questions this story traditionally would ask us is, how is Naaman saved? Now, the obvious answer is God. But I think we can do better than that. I think we could find a better and deeper answer. Because if you take a few steps back from the story, Naaman isn't just saved by God. Naaman is saved by humility. We often say that humility is to think less of yourself, almost poorly of yourself. To have humility is to almost be self-deprecating. But true humility, the kind of humility that Jesus taught and role modeled, the kind of humility that Naaman has to learn here, the kind of humility that the writers of this Bible are saying is necessary to experience life at its fullest. It's more an open willingness than anything else. Humility is the the willingness not to see yourself any different than anything or anyone. It's the willingness to be human and to have needs. It's the openness to receive And it's the openness to be molded into something new. Our story begins with Naaman refusing to seek out help, let alone receive it, or even acknowledge that he has a problem. Naaman is doing this almost like toxic masculinity thing of being like, no, I'm fine, I got this, I'm all good. But over the course of this hilarious story, Naaman has to learn that in order to be healed, In order to get his life back, he needs to become open to things that are different, scary, and beneath him. He has to become willing to accept help from a slave. He has to become willing to believe in a different kind of God. He has to become willing to accept that Elisha won't see him directly. He has to become willing to listen to his own servants. And he has to become willing to enter into the muddy, dirty, in unfamous Jordan. The power of this story isn't that Naaman gets healed. The power is in how he gets healed. He's healed through humility. He's healed through finding the will to let himself be human and receive help from the least of those 
around him. So for those of us here today who are looking for the same kind of life that Naaman wanted, a life without stigma and shame, a life that's connected to God and community, a life that isn't shrinking but that's expanding, the question this story asks us is this. Are you open and willing to let others mold you into something new? Are you willing to have the humility to enter into life through a door that you would not usually take? Do you have the fundamental disposition needed to experience the kind of life that God opens up for us? So put that in your pocket. Take it home. Think about that one this week. The second thing in this story. Who helps Naaman? Who's responsible for getting him the help that he needs? Yeah, slaves. Who else? Let's list them. Himself, okay. Who else? Elisha, sure. Okay. Missing two more. Who does the first slave speak to? His wife, yeah. So the people who help Naaman, the slave girl, Naaman's wife, Elisha's servant, and his own slaves. Or to put it another way, all the people who should not have helped Naaman. Now I know you're thinking, but wait, wait, they're servants. They're his wife. They're supposed to help him. Well, yes and no. Their job is to serve Naaman, but to offer him unsolicited advice? To speak up without being spoken to? Absolutely not. Not their place, not their role. These are people who are not supposed to have a voice. These are the nothings and the nobodies. The fact that they aren't named in this story is indicative of their status. They're not worth remembering. So why would we give them a name? They're nobodies. They're nothings. And they would know this. That's how their world works. They knew their role and they knew their place. So what made them speak up? Literally up to the people in power. What made them, despite the risk and despite their ranking in the world, tell their boss what he should do. Because just as much as this is a story about Naaman, it's also a story about them. This is a story about courage, and it's a story about compassion. It's a story about people having the courage to speak up because they felt compassion. It's a story about people choosing to break the rules because they saw someone in need. It's a story about how the needs of others should always, always, always take priority over the norms, rules, and structures that govern our world. And so as people who are here today, as people who are trying to enter into the way of Jesus, this way of justice and way of peace, the question this story asks us is a really important one. Does compassion move us to speak up? Or are we willing to risk it all when we see someone 
in need? Are we willing to break the rules? Are we willing to get in trouble? Are we willing to have everything delayed in order to help someone? So again, put that in your pocket. Take it home. Spend some time with that one this week. And finally, the third thing. But for this one, for this one we need to hear the rest of the story. So the story we heard this morning is from the lectionary. And for those of you who are new to the world of church, uh, the lectionary is a schedule of Bible passages that churches around the universe, yes, the universe, is what they use over a three-year period of time to, to read the Bible. And the whole point of the lectionary is to expose people to as much of the Bible as we possibly can. And so it forces churches not just to stick with passages they know and love or the easy passages, but it introduces them to all the themes, the questions, and styles of literature the Bible has. But one of the problems of the lectionary is that there's too much Bible. It simply won't fit into a three-year chunk of time. So in order to make it fit, in order to make it nice and tidy, the editors of the lectionary would actually cut out parts of the Bible, saying, nope, that one's not important, we don't need to hear that one. Or they would take stories and they would cut them in half. They'd be like, yeah, yeah, you know what, that's, that's enough for a sermon. We'll just leave it at that and we'll get rid of the rest of this story. And the story we heard today is one of those latter stories. There's actually more going on than where we left off. So our story goes on to say that after Elisha refused payment for his healing and Naaman started towards home, Elisha's servant who we find out now whose name is Gehazi, runs after Naaman. Now this is an important detail. Elisha's servant, who before was not named, is now named. He's doing something now that is worth remembering. There's a reason he comes in named now. And so Gehazi, he runs after Naaman because Gehazi is mad. He's upset at Elisha. He's all, what? He just offered us all the wealth in the world and you turned him down? Screw that. I charge my worth. I'm going to go get my payment. And so he runs after Naaman. He lies to Naaman saying, Elisha changed his mind. He'd like, he'd like a payment, please. And he pockets the cash. And then he goes home. Now, one of the morals of this story is you don't lie to prophets. Their job is to talk to God. Probably not the best idea. So he goes home with a pocket full of wealth, but he gets caught. Elisha finds out. And Elisha, one of God's prophets, one of God's representatives on earth, as punishment for lying, as punishment for conning Naaman, he transfers the illness he just saved Naaman from onto Gehazi himself. And that's where the story actually ends. It ends with Gehazi getting leprosy, which, remember, is a big deal. Gehazi is now an outcast. He is now an untouchable. He is now banished and alone. And why? 
all because of God's own prophet, Elisha. Now we can and we should be like, what the hell? That's a bit intense, isn't it? Like, that's a bit much. Doesn't that seem inappropriate? That's not how we want to think of someone in that powerful position should conduct themselves. That's not the way we think someone should act in the name of God, is it? Elisha seems a bit at a step. Making Gehazi get leprosy? But here's the thing. This is not the first time that Elisha has done something like this. Two stories earlier, Elisha just becomes a prophet. So he's full of God's power. He's got God's voice inside of him. He is God's representative on earth. His job is to make people act in line with God's values. So then he starts out towards this town. And 40 children come up to him, and they call him bald. They make fun of him because he's losing his hair. Baldy, baldy, baldy is what the scriptures say. They sing a song about it. And Elisha, one of God's prophets, one of God's representatives on earth, sends a pack of bears to eat the kids, (laughs) destroying 40 children. Elisha kills the children, ruins the economy of a small town, and takes away the next generation. I know, right? It's a little intense. Again, a bit much. How could someone like Elisha act that way? But perhaps even more astonishing, perhaps even more to the point, why doesn't God say something? Why doesn't God beam him up for a stern talking to? Why is God silent? God says nothing about the bears, and God says nothing about Gehazi. Why is God silent? It's a good question for us to ask, because it raises another really important question for those of us who are here this morning. What do we do when people in power do things that don't line up with their position or with their beliefs? Sub into this story any current politician, any community leader, any celebrity, any church leader, or anyone else with a small amounts of power and influence. What do we do when they do terrible things that don't sync up with their beliefs or don't line up with their position? Why is God silent on that? Why doesn't God do something? How can God let them get away with that? And I know it's a question that we've all asked, both here, internationally. It's a question that we all kind of rumble with, is why is God silent when they abuse their power? So here's the question for you to take home and sit with. What if God is silent because God's waiting for us to speak? What if God is waiting for the God within each one of you, within me, within us? What if God is waiting for us to speak up and speak out?
Again, put that one in your pocket. So three questions. Three questions to take home this week and rumble with. Are you open and willing to let others mold you into something new? Does compassion move you to speak up? And what if God is silent because God is waiting for us to speak? We are and we always have been a community that believes more in asking questions than in giving answers. Because it's in asking the questions that we can hear God's voice. It's in asking the questions that we create movement and space for growth. And it's in asking the questions that we can get pulled deeper and deeper into the kind of life that God wants us to have. So this week, as people who are here to try to learn and grow and move and become, our homework is to ask ourselves these questions. Write them down, take a picture, take them home. Rumble with them, give them some space, give them some time. And may you wonder well, and may you find life on the other side. So church, knowing that these are your questions, knowing these are the questions this story asks of us, may you go from this place, may you wonder well, may you struggle well, sit with them, converse with them, and may they pull you into new life, the kind of life that was always meant to be. May you go in peace, may you go in love, may you go and do it loudly. May the grace and peace of Christ be with you.